It's good to be here this morning with you as we prepare to share God's word. Would you bow with me once more and seek his blessing? Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you are in control of every detail of life and that even as we have heard uh, earlier in this service, some of the concerns of our church family, of those who are suffering from illness, Lord, we thank you that you are not unaware of those circumstances. You are in control of every detail. And so we trust you with that, God, and we, we simply lift up each one and each concern to you, knowing that you are in control and that you will do what is best. And so we ask for that, Lord, in your name. And now, Lord, as we enter your word, we pray that you would also speak to our hearts. You know the details of our life better even than we do. You know what we need. And so I pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word. And also, as we look at a a challenging passage of scripture, I pray for extra understanding, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And help me to speak your word as you want me to, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Professor William Phelps taught English literature at Yale University for 41 years until his retirement in 1933. Once while grading essays shortly before Christmas, Professor Phelps came upon one paper that contained only the essay question at the top of the page and underneath a hastily scribbled note that read, God only knows the answer to this question. Merry Christmas. To which Professor Phelps returned the paper with the note, God gets an A, you get an F. Happy New Year. Now, even though that student was clearly just trying a clever way to get out of writing an essay or an exam, he was right about one thing, and that is the fact that there are some questions in life that only God knows the full answer to. It's the same with many mysteries in the Bible, and this passage that's before us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 18 through 4 to 6, is one of those passages, in fact, one of them that scholars consistently agree is one of the more difficult of all the passages in Scripture to interpret. This passage has been examined, dissected, and debated for centuries, and there are very few who can say definitively that this is the correct interpretation. Ironically, the main point that Peter is making in this text is not what's at issue, Instead, it's the example that he uses of Jesus descending into Hades and preaching to the spirits in prison there, which has brought about such a wide variety of interpretations and debate. But before we dive into that particular rabbit hole, let's be clear on Peter's main point this morning. His main point for this text is this. Christians need to arm themselves with the same attitude as Jesus, an attitude that is ready and willing to suffer in order to obey God and to do what is right. So this is the main thrust of of the point this morning that Peter is trying to get across through this example. In fact, the easiest way to understand the main point of this passage is if we link 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 directly to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And let's read it that way. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles, let's read that together. It is better, Peter writes, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And then skip ahead to 4 verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
When we read those passages together, we see how naturally it connects from verse 18 directly to verse 1 of chapter 4. It connects so perfectly, in fact, that if Peter had just decided to not write verses 19 to 22, we wouldn't even necessarily think that anything was missing. The point is clear, that Jesus willingly suffered and died to defeat sin. And so we must follow his example, and we must arm ourselves with the same attitude. Here, Peter's using a military term. He's saying to arm yourself. This is something that would symbolize being prepared for battle or for combat. Basically, what Peter is saying is that if you're going to follow after Jesus in his footsteps, if you're going to die to sin and live for God, then get ready for battle. Be prepared for combat because you will get hit along the way. Don't be surprised by opposition. Just as Noah was opposed when he built the ark, Jesus was opposed, you will be opposed. This is the point that Peter is making. And along this line, keep in mind that those who oppose you are not actually opposing you so much as they are actually opposing God himself. They may be standing in opposition to you, Peter is saying, you're the one who right now is suffering, and yet if you are standing with God in his will, standing in obedience, they are actually standing against the creator themselves. And one day, they will be held to account for what they are doing and for their rebellion and rejection of standing against God. And so Peter says that in the meantime, arm yourselves for battle with Jesus' attitude. But take note that this armament is not a physical armament. It's not a raising up your fists for battle. It's not arming yourself with a sword or a gun. Obviously, they didn't have guns back then. But he's talking about arming yourself with something intangible, something that's on the inside, an attitude. Now, some of you may have been aware of the fact that later today is Super Bowl Sunday. I don't think I've ever preached on Super Bowl Sunday without at least referencing it once. So here's your Super Bowl reference. Now, if you do plan on tuning into the game later on, and especially if you tune into any part of the pregame show, I guarantee that you're going to hear an analyst say something like, which team is going to come out ready to play? You're going to hear some cliche line like that. Now, when you think about it, that statement is utterly absurd. Which team is going to come out ready to play? Like, what does he think? Does he think that an NFL team full of professional football players that are at the pinnacle of their sport are actually going to come out unprepared to play? Does he actually think they're going to come out in their street clothes or they're like hastily trying to get their cleats or their helmet and shoulder pads on because somehow, whoops, we aren't ready for the game? No, that's not what they're saying with that statement, is it? What they're saying with the statement, are they going to come out ready to play? They're speaking about an inner attitude. Which team is coming out ready to block out all of the distractions, to overcome the, any adversity that's going to happen in the game? Which team's going to come out with the right mindset that it's going to take to win? That is what they are getting at with that statement. Peter is saying the same thing about the Christian life. Attitude is everything. And having Jesus' attitude is the difference between having victory over sin and the desires for sin and failure. And so, of course, if we're going to arm ourselves with Jesus' attitude, well, we need to know what his attitude is, right? Well, if you flip over to Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this, a very clear statement on what sort of an attitude Jesus lived his life with. In verses 6, verse, uh, verses six and 7 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had 
Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Here we see Jesus' attitude, his example of how he lived his life in in most clear terms possible. Jesus took an attitude of complete submission to his Father's will. He humbled himself even though he could have held on to his rights. He surrendered those rights in order to obey his Father. In plain terms, Jesus was an obedient son. Whatever his dad decided, no matter how difficult, Jesus would do it. So when God the Father proposed the plan of salvation, Jesus obeyed, and in a word, he simply said yes. He said yes to the humiliation. He said yes to the abuse. Yes to the ridicule. Yes to the flogging. Yes to the cross itself. And finally, he said yes to entering the grave of death itself. Jesus said yes to all of that so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus did all of this to make it possible that on the day of judgment, God can say, yes, you can enter my kingdom to each one of us. Now, as we consider this, I don't believe that we can ever fully grasp the sheer magnitude of what Jesus did by saying yes to his Father's will. What he had to endure in order to fulfill the plan of salvation. What it cost him to leave heaven to become the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. I know that when I try to wrap my mind around the magnitude of it, I tend to focus on the physical suffering that he endured on the cross and prior to it. But the incredible thing is that his mission did not end on the cross and then resume upon the resurrection on Sunday morning. But Peter points to the fact that it actually continued while Jesus' body lay in the tomb and his spirit descended to Hades. Now, as to what Jesus did while he is in the grave is where Peter now takes us. So let's go there and pick it up again at the end of chapter 3 and verse 18. Reading again of what Peter writes, he says, He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God awaited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, this is a very perplexing verse. It's one that has had many theories thrown about as to what it means. Time will simply not allow for us to examine all of the theories. And so, for the sake of brevity, I am going to give you the theory that I happen to find the most persuasive. And so, with the caution and disclaimer that only God knows, (laughs) as I said in the outset, the full truth of what this verse means and what happened. Let me share with you the interpretation that I find most compelling when taken into context with the entirety of Scripture. Now first, it's evident that Peter was given some sort of special insight into what occurred while Jesus was in the tomb during the period between his death and resurrection. We don't know how Peter received this insight. Jesus may have told him personally prior to his ascension, or perhaps the Holy Spirit revealed this to Peter in some other way. But we can be certain that Peter is writing about this as a factual account. He's writing about this as something that really happened, not as an allegory that he devised to make a point, or some abstract idea that Jesus' spirit preached through Noah in the past, 
which is one of the other theories. No, it seems clear that Peter is writing about this as something that really happened. And so I find no reason to question that this actually occurred, what Peter is writing about here. And so since we can rest assured that this is something that truly happened, we can do some detective work to try to put the clues together from within the framework of the Bible to, to find an interpretation that is in harmony with the rest of Scripture. So the first thing we need to determine is this. Who are the spirits in prison that Jesus preached to that were disobedient during the time of Noah? Now, the Greek word used here for spirit is the word pneuma. Pneuma is never used alone in reference to people when used elsewhere in Scripture. But it's often used alone in reference to angels or demons. So this term spirits, when used elsewhere alone in this way in Scripture, is always referencing a spiritual being, not a person. So since the text makes clear that these spirits were disobedient... I take the view that they are the fallen angels or demons who are referenced in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 as the sons of God, another common term for angels, the sons of God who rebelled against God were thrown out of heaven, then came to earth, married human women and had children by them who became known as the heroes of old, men of renown. And you can look that up in Genesis chapter 6. Now it's clear when we look at this account that the angels who had taken human wives and had children with them was such an egregious act, such a violation of God's created order, that God imprisoned all of the fallen angels who did this to await the final judgment. Now, Peter references this in his second letter in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He writes this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. Jude chapter 1 verse 6 also references this event. He writes, And the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And so from these references in scripture, we see here a case being built. For this rebellious act by the fallen angels effectively beginning to taint the bloodline of Adam and Eve, through whose offspring God had promised to send the one who would crush the serpent's head and defeat Satan. And so here, it's plausible, this examination that Satan persuaded other angels to have offspring with human women in direct violation to God's created order, in an attempt to undermine God's plan by tainting the bloodline of the entire human race, so that the promised Savior could not be born, who would eventually defeat him. And we, when we consider this explanation, and we look at the account in Genesis chapter 6 of God being so over, overwhelmed by what he saw, that the world was filled with violence and evil continuously, that he decides to wipe out the entire planet with a flood. And in the end, only Noah and his family are saved, because they are the only ones who have not forsaken God. And so we see this as an example here of how through the ark Noah and his family are saved just as how now through Jesus we are also saved. And so those of them who rejected God are now doomed for everlasting judgment and we see that these angels are reserved for that day of judgment. 
And so when Jesus' body went into the grave, his spirit descended into Hades to declare to these fallen angels imprisoned there that their plan has failed and that God's plan for the salvation of all mankind has prevailed. On this point, commentator John MacArthur says this. He writes, Christ went to preach a triumphant sermon before his resurrection on Sunday morning. The verb translated makes proclamation refers to making a proclamation or declaration of triumph or victory. In ancient times, a herald would precede generals and kings in the celebration of military victories, announcing to all the victories won in battle. And that's what Jesus went to do. Not to preach the gospel to give these angels a second chance, but instead to announce his triumph over sin, death, hell, demons, and Satan himself. He didn't go to win souls, but to proclaim victory to the enemy, in spite of the unjust suffering they had subjected him to. Now, if you want to relate this to boxing terms, Jesus had gone all 15 rounds. He had taken every blow, absorbed every strike, the worst that the devil could throw his way. He had taken it all. And just when it looked like he had been KO'd, knocked down, the enemy had won, Jesus reveals to them the truth. He was down, but not out. The grave could not hold him. Hades couldn't keep him. He would rise victorious and land the final blow that would knock Satan's sin and death out for good. Jesus announced victory victory to hell itself. He had won. Their plan had failed. In order to do this, Jesus hadn't taken the easy route. He didn't take the easy way out. Instead, he obeyed his father's instructions to the last drop of his sweat and blood. He armed himself with the attitude of humble obedience. One that said, Dad, I will obey you no matter what. I will go to the cross, I will go to the grave, and I will declare victory over sin and death and the demons and hell itself, and I will rise victorious to declare your triumph. And Peter goes on to show that now... Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father with all powers and principalities in submission to him. How is that submission achieved? Through his victory. Through what he endured through the cross and the grave in order to ensure it. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, now arm yourselves also with the same attitude. This is the call for us. We need to embrace that same humble attitude of saying to God, whatever you say, whatever you command, whatever your will, I will say yes. And when we say yes to God's will, this is how we have victory over sin in our life. Because as Peter points out, he who has suffered in the body has died to sin. And so when we identify with Jesus' suffering, Jesus died to sin once for all, And so we too can say we are dead to sin once for all. It no longer has control over us because we have armed ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had when he defeated it. Now in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3 and 4, Peter specifically addresses the reality that when you stop doing the sorts of things that the rest of our culture and non-believing friends are doing, when we consider ourselves dead to sin, and we follow God's path, and we stop doing the things that the world is doing, things like sleeping around, getting drunk, partying, etc., all the things that we can think of that our depraved culture is doing, the results will be 
They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they will heap abuse on you. Now, when the crowd is running the wrong way, it's hard to be the oddball who runs the right way, isn't it? This is where the abuse comes from. And this was the case for most of the participants in the NCAA 10,000-meter cross-country race in Riverside, California. Now, Mike Delcavo was heading the wrong way, or so everyone else thought. He kept waving for the other 127 runners to follow him, but only four of the other 127 runners believed that he had taken the right turn, the one that all the other uh, competition had missed. It seems that the lead runner had missed the sign telling them to turn. And so everyone else kept following him, assuming that the lead runner knew where he was going. Everyone, that is, except for Mike, who noticed the sign and took the right turn. When he was asked about the reaction to his mid-course decision to not allow the, cl- the crowd to determine his direction, and everyone told him he was going the wrong way, Mike responded, They thought it was funny that I was, in fact, going the right way. Now, most people don't like being considered strange. No one likes to have abuse heaped on them. For most of us, our inner attitude tends to be blend in, fit in with the crowd. Don't stand out as to avoid being considered strange or suffering abuse. But if Mike had done that and followed the crowd, he would have been one of the many going the wrong way. But in the end, what is more important? Fitting in or going the right way? even if you're the only one. This is exactly what happened in the time of Noah. Noah was a a voice crying in the wilderness. For 120 years, he built the ark and warned an entire generation of judgment that was coming, but they laughed and ridiculed him that entire time. And still God waited patiently all that time, giving everyone an opportunity to be saved. But in the end, as Peter points out in verse 20, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved. Sometimes, in order to do what is right, we have to stand alone. We have to stand in the minority in order to be obedient to God. Remembering, Jesus stood alone, died alone, went to the grave alone, but he was right. He was in obedience to his Father's will, and he achieved victory. And so this is how we must face our lives as well, armed with the attitude of Jesus Christ. What are you facing in your life today? What attitude are you armed with? Are you like Mike, saying, hey everyone, this is the right path, follow me? Or are we like those other runners who say, the guys up ahead must be right, the crowd must know where it's going, I'm just going to blend in. This is the call for us as Christians, the willingness to suffer for what is right, even if we have to do it alone, just as Jesus did. So arm yourself with his attitude today. Whatever you are facing... Rest assured that if you are following in obedience to God's will for your life, God will give you the strength and he will vindicate you in the end, just as Jesus is now vindicated and has been placed above all authorities, that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, this is indeed a great mystery. The mystery of salvation. That the Lord Jesus, in that act of dying upon the cross, descending into the grave and declaring victory, 
Lord, this is a mystery that we cannot fully grasp, and yet in faith we believe that it is so. We believe, Lord, that you rose victorious from the grave, and that because of your victory over death and sin, we walk in that victory today, and we can live in that victory. And that today, Lord, even as a culture and friends and and family around us may say, why are you living your life that way? Why are you following after God when it seems to bring you nothing but suffering and pain and heartache? And we can say, because it's right. We know it to be true. We know God is with us. And so, Father, today I pray for each one of us here that we would arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus Christ. That we would say yes to you no matter what it costs. No matter what the pain or the trials along the way, help us to say yes, knowing that you will see us through to victory in the end. And so, Father, we pray for that victory. We pray for perseverance until that day is achieved. Help us to walk faithfully with you day by day and step by step for each moment that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.